Well, now I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll be looking together this morning at verses 11 and 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll be looking at the end of the chapter, last two verses, verse 11 and 12. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Uh, is writing this to the church at Thessalonica. And he says, starting in verse 11, To this end also we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Marvelous words under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Well, the second coming of Christ is certainly a dominant theme in all of Scripture. Uh, it, it certainly is a dominant theme in First and Second Thessalonians. But uh, particularly in the New Testament, The second coming of Christ has a very major place to play in Scripture. For example, in 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament, you find references to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one scholar determined that on the average, one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament was a reference to the second coming of Christ. That's quite amazing when you think about it. So, the message is, the King is coming. And the question is, are we ready to meet Him? And how do we get ready to meet the King who is definitely coming? We don't know when, but He is certainly coming And how does a church get prepared to meet the Lord whenever that day comes? Well, one of the vital means of getting prepared is prayer. And prayer is a vital part because we need power in the Christian life. And prayer is one of the means by which we cry out to God for power in the Christian life. So if we want to live a life that is ready and prepared for the coming of our Lord, whenever that day may be, we certainly need to realize the importance that prayer has in helping us to be ready. So that's why, for example, in verse 11, the Apostle Paul now turns his attention to a prayer for the Thessalonians that they might be prepared and ready for the coming of the Lord. And we always have much to learn from the Apostle Paul and his prayers. Uh, there's great instruction in how to pray by studying the prayers of, of Scripture. And that definitely includes the prayers of the Apostle Paul. So notice again his prayer as he starts out in verse 11. He says, To this end also... We pray for you always. 
that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So notice how he begins. To this end. Or you could translate that with the idea of with this in mind, we pray for you always. So we have to begin by asking ourselves, what's in his mind? When he says, to this end, what is he thinking about? And obviously we go back to the preceding context, verses 5 through 10, where the Apostle Paul is describing the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he will both give relief to his saints that are being afflicted, and also give retribution to those afflicting the church. So both of those happen when Christ comes back. He'll rapture up the church. That's the relief. When all of our suffering, all of our tribulation, all of our afflictions come to an end, when He comes to lift us up off the earth to join Him in the air and then come back down to the earth to judge the very ones afflicting us. So that's what He's been talking about. And notice particularly verse 10 talking about the second coming of Christ, when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. So this is what's in His mind. So when He says, to this end, that is, in anticipating the coming of Christ, when He comes to rescue His people and punish the unbelievers, with that in mind... We pray for you always. So the reality of the second coming should impact our daily lives. And this is what Paul is basically motivating him to pray is to the end of Christ's return and all that's going to happen when He does return, we pray for you always that God will count you worthy of your calling. So notice also just referencing here in verse 11 the prayer life of the Apostle Paul that he prayed for them always. Paul, you know, he was quite an amazing man because he lived in a continual atmosphere of prayer. And I think he was always bringing requests to God for all the churches that the Lord had used him to to plant. I think the Apostle Paul was one of those rarely gifted Godly men who live perpetually in the presence of God. Or as Ligonier Ministry would describe it as Coram Deo. Living before the face of God. Now for most of us, that happens haphazardly. We may get up in the morning and read our Bible and pray. And we kind of go through the whole day and God really isn't even in our thinking. And maybe not even at night. Till the next day or a couple of days go by. But the Apostle Paul, I think, was always living in the presence of God. He was not a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination. But he was a man who prayed often. You remember all the, all the way back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, he exhorted the saints there to pray without ceasing. And I think he, he did that. Not that you're constantly praying every minute of the day, But that prayer was just a perpetual habit in his life. 
And how blessed are those in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. For those people who dwell near the throne of grace and they live close to God's throne of power and grace. Blessed are those people because they're going to be in prayer with the Lord, fellowship with the Lord far more than those who are not. This is the kind of man the Apostle Paul was. He says, to this end of Christ's return and all that's going to happen, we pray for you always. Now, what does he pray for? Well, in the rest of this verse, he gives basically three things that he's praying for the Thessalonians in light of the second coming. The first thing he says that he prays for is that God will count you worthy of your calling. And this was something that the Apostle Paul desired for all of his churches that he ministered to. That God in His grace would enable them to live their life worthy of their calling. Worthy of the Lord. That was always on his heart. That's what he was always praying for. Even in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you remember, he prayed so that they would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. So here he's asking the same request in 2 Thessalonians. To the church at Ephesus, he writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So now he's exhorting the church, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. To the church at Colossae, he, it's a prayer again that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So that Paul wanted all of these believers to live their life in such a way that they were worthy of Christ, worthy of the calling that they had received by God's sovereign grace. So this is the first thing that he's actually praying for them about. To be worthy is that your life matches and reflects your calling. For God to count you worthy of your calling is your lifestyle reflects your calling. There's agreement. There's consistency there. So let's kind of break this down. The calling that every believer has received is a, is a calling from God that radically changes us. And the reason why this calling is so important for us to, to, uh, to live up to is because many people profess to know God, but they don't really know Him. Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 1, verse 16, and said that they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good work. So that there's people in the church who say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I know the Lord. Yeah, I got baptized on a certain day or I walked the aisle a certain time. They say, I know the Lord, but you look at their life and it's totally inconsistent with a Christian lifestyle. It doesn't match. There's no harmony. There's no agreement. In other words, they claim to be a Christian, but they're not living like a Christian at all. So either they're a true believer in sin and need to repent, or they're an unbeliever and they need to get saved. 
But he acknowledges the reality that with some people, their walk does not match their talk. And that's really what he's driving at here. So Paul is praying to God that God will count you worthy of your calling. So Paul refers to this call of God, which comes to God's elect at a certain point in time when He calls us out of darkness into His marvelous light. He calls us out of spiritual death into His life. He calls us out of a lifestyle of sin to a life that strives to please the Lord. It involves our, a call to salvation and sanctification and glorification and fellowship with the living God. So Paul is praying, oh God, make that a reality in their life. May their life be worthy of the call that they have received from you. And this call is a, an effectual, powerful, irresistible call. And this is the way Paul usually speaks of our calling. For example, in Romans 8 verse 30 is kind of the classic verse of the call being irresistible and effectual. When Paul writes to the church at Rome, these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So everyone that's predestined to eternal life gets called. This is not the call of man in the gospel that people can resist and say no to. This is the call of God. This is where God just breathes life into that soul and and resurrects them and He calls them and they do respond. It's the power of God's call, not the call of man. This is the call of Christ at Lazarus' tomb. When He says, Lazarus, come forth. If you and I made those words, nothing would happen. If we made that call, He wouldn't respond. But when God makes that call, and with that call comes this supernatural life-giving power that penetrates and changes the very inner core, suddenly He's resurrected from the dead, He comes alive, and He responds to the call. That's the call of God. This is a call that everyone who's called will be justified. They will get saved. And everyone who's justified will be glorified. They will arrive in heaven. So this is the calling that we have received. It's supernatural, heart transplant, powerful call of God that has changed us from the inside out. But because we still sin and we still have that remnant of sin within us, we still struggle in this area. And so Paul is praying that God would count them worthy of their calling. That He would make their life consistent with the call that God has placed on their life. So he's praying because only God can do it. Our calling is to be heirs of heaven. And so Paul is praying that we might live like heirs of heaven. Because our calling is something that should be reflected in our daily life. Now this theme of a call to worthy, being worthy of your calling, does not imply merit, 
does not imply we're trying to work for or earn our salvation. No, we are totally unworthy apart from the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, right? We're not worthy. Nor can we make ourselves worthy. That's why Paul is praying to God to count them as worthy of their calling. This is a divine heavenly grace. A transformation that God brings about. So that the the worthy of your calling is not so that we can earn our salvation, but it's evidence of our salvation. That's the point. It's the evidence that our heart has been changed. It's the evidence that my my faith is alive and real. Not that I'm going to live a perfect or sinless life, but that my life is being lived out worthy of, of the call that I've received from God. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. That was one of the expressions from the Protestant Reformation. Saving faith is not a dead faith. It's not an inactive faith or a disobedient kind of faith. It's a faith that actually lives out a life that is worthy of our calling. And Paul is praying for God to make that a reality. And all this is in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. When He comes back, how do we get prepared? Well, we pray for God to count us worthy of our calling so that we can live that out on a daily basis. That's what Paul, exactly what Paul is doing. Now, I do want to make a, a comment. In some of your Bibles, uh, I want to talk about the word power that occurs at the end of verse 11. Here he speaks of the work of faith with power. Some of y'all in your translations, like the NIV and the ESV, place the word power in a different place and they ascribe it to God's power, uniquely God's power. Like for example, the NIV says that by His power, He may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. The ESV says every work of faith by His power... And all of that is true. Even in the New American Standard, when it says the work of faith with power, it's understood that that power comes from God because Paul is praying to God to do this work in them. So the power, either way you translate it, we should understand that this power comes from God. So the worthy lifestyle of our calling is, is not something that we can accomplish by our own strength. So that's why prayer is needed. Because power is needed. Power from God. That's why we pray, Oh God, count us. Consider us worthy. Work in that lifestyle in our life so that our, our lives will be worthy of our calling. Oh God, do that. Because we need His power to do that. So that's what he's emphasizing. So now he gives some specifics as to how God will count us worthy of our calling. So this is still in the prayer. He prays, number one, that God will count you worthy of your calling. And then to expand on that, he prays, secondly, that God would fulfill every desire for goodness. So he's asking for God to fulfill 
those desires and ambitions and longings to do good in this world. You see, every believer should have a desire to be good and to do good, right? That should be in all of our hearts. All, we should have that desire at home to be good to our spouses, our children. We should have that desire at work among the people that we work with. We want to be good to them, right? The Scripture says be good to all men, especially to those who are the household of the faith. So we want to, we want to spread goodness to people around us in our day-to-day lives. At work, at home, at church, in the world, out and about. We want to be known as people of good works. We're to be rich in good works. We're to engage in good works. That's one of the marks of a child of God. But Paul is praying for God to bring those desires to fruition. To fulfill those desires. Because let's face it, oftentimes we have desires to do good, but those desires just get somehow short-circuited. Sometimes they lie dormant. Sometimes there's a lack of resolve or, or energy. Uh, and I'll use my own sad example. Over Thanksgiving, um, I was around a, a number of my family that are unbelievers. And it's very difficult in that kind of a context to bring up the gospel and bring up spiritual things uh, because just you know you're just trying to get caught up on what's going on. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna write each of them, my nephew, my nieces, my siblings, a, a letter, short letter, and include a, a gospel track. Now they've most of them have heard it from me too many times. They don't want to hear it from me anymore. But for some of them, I've never really had a gospel conversation. So I thought I would do that. Have I done that yet? No. I haven't. So I speak to my own need for prayer and for the power of God to fulfill those desires of doing good to other people. Because we oftentimes struggle in those areas. Uh, this power is something that Paul is very sensitive to. In the New American Standard, it's the work of faith with power. But it's divine power. And power is something that we need as Christians regularly. And I'm just amazed if you just look up the word power, how oftentimes Paul is praying or, or desiring for God's power to be operative in our lives because we need it so much. But in his prayer to the Ephesians, he prays that God would grant you according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. We need that. We need God's power in our inner man because of the struggle that we have with our sin nature so often. And it just short-circuits. It derails that, that spiritual power in our life. He went on to pray, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God's grace. To the church of Colossae, for this purpose I also labor, striving according to His power which mildly works within me. The whole ministry of the Apostle Paul 
was the outworking of God's power in his life. We need God's power. And whenever we feel our own weakness, then we should certainly be all the more attentive to praying for our need for his power. So he is praying here for basically not only that God would count you to be worthy of your calling, but that God would fulfill every desire for goodness in your life. Because oftentimes those desires just simply do not materialize. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7, The good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. He said, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. And how often we can identify with that. Uh, He's not writing this as an unbeliever. I believe he's writing it as a believer. But he's expressing that frustration that the good that I want to do, I don't do it. For some reason, I just don't get around to it. And I come up with, at least in in our experience, excuses like I don't have the time or I'm too tired. And we make all these excuses for not doing good. And so Paul is praying, Oh God, for this church at Thessalonica, Lord, would You enable them to walk worthy of their calling? Would You fulfill every desire for goodness? And the reason why that's so important is just because sin is always trying to prevent us from doing good. Later on in 2 Thessalonians, Paul will exhort them by saying, do not grow weary of doing good. Don't grow weary. Keep it up. Keep doing good. Do good to your enemies. Overcome evil with good, as Paul tells the Romans. And later on, it's interesting, in 2 Corinthians... Apparently, the Lord answered this request for the Thessalonians to fulfill every desire for goodness. Because in 2 Thessalonians, Paul brags about the churches of Macedonia. That would include the Thessalonian church. For their sacrificial giving in raising up this offering to send this money back to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And he's bragging about how sacrificial they were in their giving. And that was doing good. So in many, many ways, uh, Paul is praying that God would give them the grace, the power to fulfill every desire for goodness. So may He give us desires to do good and then give us the power to follow through with it. And then the third thing he prays for is That God would fulfill, that's still the idea, the work of faith with power. So Harry now mentions the work of faith. And this is just emphasizing that for the believer, our faith should be active, it should be working, not to earn our salvation, but out of a thankfulness of our salvation, we should be working. Our faith should be energetic. Our faith should be active and busy and serving and loving and ministering. And so we still need God's power to do that. Because our faith oftentimes can be very happy with just sitting idly by and let everybody else do the work. And yet our 
faith should be active. And so he prays, God fulfill the work of faith in them as well with power. Again, no human power is adequate for this. Prayer is needed because divine power is needed. And this is why I think the Apostle Paul emphasizes the importance of of prayer so often. Now, before we move on, just notice something about the priority of Paul's prayer for this church. Now, they're going through persecution. They're going through affliction. We saw that in 1 Thessalonians. He's already mentioned it in uh, the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians. But notice what Paul does not pray for. He doesn't pray, oh God, rescue them from all these afflictions. Now, Now we pray that way because we don't want people to suffer. We don't want our brothers and sisters, so we pray for God to relieve them. I think that's fine. That's certainly biblical. But that's not the priority for the Apostle Paul's prayer. He doesn't actually pray for God to remove their afflictions, but that God would count them worthy in the midst of their afflictions. That they would be have these desires for goodness that are fulfilled, the works of faith that are fulfilled. That's what he's praying for. Because conformity to Christ's likeness is more of a blessing to us than just having our external afflictions and persecutions taken away. And that's the heart of the Apostle Paul. That we would be like Christ. And those afflictions are oftentimes a very valuable part of that transformation. So from the prayer for a fruitful ministry, which is basically what he's been praying for, we now see in verse 12 the purpose of this fruitful ministry. And he summarizes that when he says, so that, this is the purpose, in light of the second coming, when Christ comes back, the way that you can live a life that is worthy of your calling is to pray for power to fulfill every desire of goodness and the works of faith. And here's the purpose for that. So that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in Him. So the purpose of this fruitful ministry of our faith and and goodness coming out and bearing fruit is so that Christ would be glorified in us and we would be glorified in Him. So verse 12 kind of repeats the idea of verse 10 that when He comes to be glorified in His saints... And so this is now part of his prayer. Oh God, in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ, may the church here be worthy of their calling, very fruitful in their lives, their faith, their good works, so that you would be glorified in them and they would be glorified in you. So that's the purpose. Again, the idea that uh, Paul is praying for Christ's name to be glorified in them tells us this is really kind of what it's all about. It's not about our glory. It's about Christ's glory. Whether we're suffering, whether it's affliction, persecution, all of that is for the glory of Jesus Christ. 
Notice that he says the purpose is that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. The name is oftentimes used just to not, not to distinguish one person from another, but to communicate the idea of their character. And here the character is summarized by the Lord Jesus. So what Paul wants in his life is for God to give them power so they can live a life worthy of their calling, bearing fruit in every good work, in light of looking for, anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ so that the Lord Jesus would be glorified in us. You can break down the name of our Lord so that the Lord, Jesus as our Lord, would be glorified. And how would that happen? Jesus is glorified in our lives when we live under His Lordship, when we live with Him as our Sovereign King, our Master, when we are submitting to His will, when we're living a life to please Him as our Lord, He is glorified in us. As a source of the power to bear fruit, He is glorified when we bear fruit. So when He produces by His power that, those good works, that fruitful faith, Christ is being glorified in us because it's His grace producing that through us. He's being glorified in us. It's His work by His Spirit producing that in our lives. So He's being glorified. He's being glorified as our Lord, but also as the Lord Jesus. The name Jesus, of course, means Jesus is salvation. And He's being glorified in His work of saving us from our sins by giving us a new nature, by giving us the Holy Spirit, that Jesus, our Savior, is glorified in us when, we're, when our life is being lived out worthy of our calling. So that our mission is to glorify Christ. And then he adds here that we would be glorified in Him. He would be glorified in us and we would be glorified in Him. Well, how would that work? Probably the idea is that we would reflect His character. When we're walking worthy of our calling, when we're bearing fruit and good works, we are basically being glorified in Christ because we are reflecting Christ's image, Christ's glory. And that's the idea that I think Paul has in mind here. Now, that's a process going on even now in our sanctification. Look at what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. In other words, even now, as we're being gradually transformed, as we're being sanctified, we're being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. A gradual increase of glory through the process of sanctification. So Christ is being glorified in us. Even now, as we walk worthy of our calling. But this will even be much greater, of course, when the Lord finally comes back at His second coming. Because then, He will be glorified in us and we will be glorified in Him in a far greater way that could ever happen in this life. This is amazing because in 1 Corinthians, Paul told the saints there, 
that when Christ comes back, they will actually judge the world. And then in verse 3, he said, you will judge angels. Well, how does that work? Christ is a judge, but he, he will glorify us in allowing us to share with Him in that judgment. So Christ is the judge, but we're there with Him and He shares that ministry of judgment with the saints, which is pretty awesome to think about. There's, a, there's an interesting story of General Douglas MacArthur at the end of World War II when he was signing the documents to accept the surrender of the Imperial Japan and bring an end to World War II. And MacArthur is there to sign those documents that would end the war. But he didn't want to just sign it by himself. He actually had two other generals who had been captured by the Japanese and put in prison earlier in the war to come and be with him in signing that document. And when they signed the document, General MacArthur wrote his first name, Douglas. And then he handed the pen to one of those other two generals who had been rescued out of the Japanese prison. And one of them wrote the, the name Mac. And then the other one took the pen and wrote, finished the last name, Arthur. So that they shared in that victory. They shared in that conquest. They shared in all the joy of the war being over. And there's a sense in which Christ will be glorified in us and we'll be glorified in Him. And we will share, He will share His glory with us even in the judgment, pronouncing the victory over all the enemies of the church and even over angels themselves. That's an amazing thing that we have to look forward to. And then finally, the Apostle Paul he has spoken of the prayer for a fruitful ministry, the purpose of a fruitful ministry to glorify Christ, and now he ends with the power of a, of a fruitful ministry. So again in verse 12, so that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all by grace. Our ability to walk worthy of our calling, to bear gospel fruit in our life by faith, engaged in good works by His power, is all by God's grace. It's all according to His grace. We cannot churn it out. We cannot manufacture it. This is something that requires the grace of Almighty God. And that's how He closes. With a reminder that He's praying for a fruitful ministry, for the purpose that Christ would be exalted, and by the power of His grace to accomplish it all. Notice he speaks of the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace comes from both of them, which is an indication that both are divine, both are God, two persons of the Godhead, Grace flows from both God the Father and God the Son.
But we need that grace. So Paul is praying for that grace. That is the key to the power, to the transformation, to the lifestyle, to the glory of Christ that comes through us. It's all by His grace. So the power to live a life worthy of our calling, which glorifies Christ, comes from God's grace. This grace is something that we should never take for granted. It's why we need to be praying without ceasing because we need that grace all the time. So that in essence, what Paul is saying, for us to be prepared for the second coming, we need to live close to our blessed hope. We need to be praying for grace, for power, that our lives would reflect the glory of Christ. It's just like the old ancient sailors who navigated the seas by the sun and the stars. Of course, today sailors use GPS. Back in the old day, they would watch the sun, the pattern, the path of the sun across the sky during the day, and the stars at night, they would get their bearings so that they could stay on course and arrive at their destination. Well, when the clouds of the world blow in, they can easily lose their way. I think what Paul is indicating is that when the clouds of the world blow into our life and they obscure the glory of Christ and His coming, and we're not looking up, watching and waiting for the second coming of Jesus Christ, it has a way to weaken our hearts and allow the world's influences to have more of a grip and take root in our life because we're not anchored in our hope of the coming of Jesus Christ. And so I think that's why he's praying. He's praying that the church would have that focus of the return of Christ. And that as we focus on Christ's coming, we pray that He would give us the power and the grace to live a life that's worthy of our calling. That future perspective is vital to Christianity, is vital to a spiritual, fruitful life. So it's like Paul would say, that by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And that grace of God was rooted in the fact that He had this focus on Christ's coming. He lived with that reality, that hope, that joy, that blessing every day of His life, and it kept Him near to Christ and kept back the clouds of the world that can so easily cloud our vision. John says that everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. So, in conclusion, how do we prepare for Christ's coming? This is what I think Paul ultimately is getting at in verse 11 and 12. And you can summarize the message by saying, we prepare for Christ's coming by praying for God's grace to give us fruitful lives that we might glorify Christ both now and when He returns. And that was the prayer of Paul. And I think it's a prayer that is worthy of us to pray as well. Of course, all that future glory, uh, glorification, and 
heaven and all that we have to, to look forward to was purchased and accomplished for us by Christ's death and His suffering on the cross. Because He died and paid the penalty for our sins, all who have repented and put their faith and trust in Christ can now have that hope of glory to come. And all of that hope is because Christ died on the cross and bore our sins. So it's now our privilege to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is for believers only. And again, we remind you if you're here this morning and not a believer, just observe and think about your sin. Think about that Jesus Christ is coming back. A day of judgment is coming. And without a Savior, then you will have to pay for your sins. But Christ offers you forgiveness. He offers you salvation. So turn from your sin and come to Christ and receive that free gift that only He can give and experience the fullness of His grace in your life. Starting now and to be consummated when He comes back. But come to Christ. That is our prayer for you. For those who know the Lord, this is our time to think back to the cross. To think of the pain and the suffering, the agony of our Savior and His love to save us from the hell that we deserve. He endured in essence our hell that we might be forgiven. And that should fill us with great joy and great praise to Christ. As we break the bread, we break unleavened bread as a great example or symbol of the sinlessness of Christ. And we break it because His body was broken, not His bones, but His flesh was torn as He suffered the agony of death and crucifixion to save us from our sins. So if the ushers would please come forward. We'll give thanks for the bread. And then please hold the bread till all have been served and then we'll partake together. And remember Jesus said to do this in remembrance of Me. So reflect upon Christ and express to Him your love, your joy, your praise, your thankfulness for all that He has done to save us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You Lord for this time as we have reflected upon the incredible second coming of Christ, and yet, oh, the glory of the first coming, the glory of the cross, the suffering pain that we cannot imagine as He bore the full weight of all of our sins and He drank the full cup of God's wrath down to the very last drop so that when on the cross He cried out to Telestai, it is finished that our salvation at that point had been accomplished and all He had to do was to die. So Lord, thank You for Jesus' love for us and willingness to come and suffer and die for us and fill our hearts with joy and thanksgiving for all that He has done to save us. And we praise You, Father, for this gift. In Jesus' name, Amen.